All right, I hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Psalm 132. Psalm 132. This will be our last week in the Psalms for a little while. And this morning we come to a Psalm that it's a little longer than the other ones we've been in recently. And honestly, a little harder to understand than some of the other Psalms we've been in over the last few weeks. But it is a Psalm that I'm excited to share with you. In this Psalm, we have this reminder that we have a God who has made promises and we have a God who keeps his promises. I think that's that's the main thing that God would have us to hear this morning from this Psalm. He makes promises and he keeps promises. So that's where we're headed. With that in mind, let's go ahead and read the Psalm. Psalm 132. Hear the word of God. A song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardship he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away your face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. As we come to the psalm, here's the question I want us to consider. How can we be sure that God will keep his promises? That's the question. How can we know God will keep his promises? And it's an important question, I think, for most of us because I think I know most of you well, and you are banking everything on the fact that God will keep his promises. So it's an important question. And it's a question that we could answer several different ways. But this morning, as we look at the psalm, I want us to consider that the reason we can trust the promises of God is because we can look back and we can see how he's been faithful to his promises throughout history. We can look back and see that God has always kept his promises. And so with the past 
promises kept, we can trust that he will continue to be faithful. This week as I've been in the psalm, I, I began thinking a lot about history, the importance of history, and in particular, the importance of biblical history. Think about what we have in the Bible. I've just said it, basically. We have this record of promises that were made by God and promises that were kept by God. We can read through the scriptures and see over and over that God has done the things that he said that he's going to do. I was reminded this week of a, a section of a book that I read, and it speaks to this idea of biblical history and biblical memory. This pastor said, we need the centuries of experience provided by our biblical ancestors. A Christian who has David in his bones and Jeremiah in his bloodstream, Paul in his fingertips and Christ in his heart will know how much and how little value to put on his own momentary feelings and experiences each week. He goes on and says, if we're going to live adequately and maturely as the people of God, we need more data to work with than our own experience. I think that's true. Because if we only focus in on what God has done in my life or not done in my life, it can be easy for us to, to, to begin to doubt. But when we read the Bible, we get a longer view. We get a view of how God has been faithful throughout history to his people. And that's what we see in Psalm 132, a reminder of the faithfulness of God. Now, we read the psalm, and I think if we're going to understand, I told you, this psalm is it's not as clear. You know, we've been reading through the scriptures. I wonder if you have these days. We read one psalm, we think, man, that was good. We read another psalm and think, I'll mark that one off the list, right? Because it just didn't hit. It didn't have those key phrases, those key words that we latch on to. For this psalm, if we're going to understand it, it does help to have a little bit of biblical history in mind. In particular, we need the story of King David. Remember David, he, he wanted to build a house for God. Do you remember this? I want to build a house for God, a place for his presence to dwell. We're going to focus in on that part of David's story, but it's actually a story that, that begins with Moses. We can go back to Exodus and remember that God told Moses to build a box. Remember this? I want you to build an ark called the Ark of the Covenant. And let me just describe it for you. This is from Exodus, the description that God gave. God tells Moses to build this box. It's made out of acacia wood. It's about four feet long. It's about two and a half feet tall and about two and a half feet wide. It's made of wood, but it's covered with gold. On, on the sides of it are these big rings because when they carry it, they would stick this pole through the rings so they could carry it by pole. On top, on either side of the top, there are these cherubs, like winged angels. So we can picture this beautiful, ornate box called the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the box were the tablets that contained the Ten Commandments. And wherever the people of God went, they would, they would take the Ark of the Covenant with them. So it went as a symbol of the presence of God. It was holy. You remember the story of the man who touched it and was killed. It was a visible representation of the presence of God with his people. So as they wandered in the wilderness, the ark went with them. 
in each place they camped, they would, they would set up the tent, the tabernacle, and that would be the, the house for the Ark of the Covenant. And maybe next time you read through the Bible, you can just kind of say, I'm going to follow the story of the Ark of the Covenant. It's a story that, that goes throughout the Old Testament scriptures, through the wilderness wanderings. For a while, it was in a place called Shiloh. But then during a battle with the Philistines, the Ark was captured. And you remember for a period of time, it wasn't with the people at all. It caused problems for the Philistines. Eventually, they give it back. After they get it back, it goes to a village called Kiriath-Jerim. And yes, I use my audio Bible. I think that's right. That's how they pronounced it. That brings us to the time of David. When David became king, the ark was in this village, Kiriath-Jerim. Now, David, you'll remember, is the one who makes Jerusalem the capital city of God, the people of God, and he built his palace there, and it was a grand place to live. And what we read in, in Samuel is that David begins to be convicted because here I am living in this big, beautiful house, but where is the ark of God? It's in a tent. It's not in Jerusalem at all. And so he has a desire to give the ark of God, the presence of God, a proper place. And he promises God, I'm going to build you a house. The story is in 2 Samuel 6 and 7. So I hope you'll just tuck that away. I'm going to read this week 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 7. Really, really important chapters in the storyline of the Bible. You know, some chapters that, that a lot of things hinge on. And 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 7 are some of those chapters. It's there that David says to God, I want to build you a house. I want to build a place for your presence to dwell. And it seems like a good plan. And even the prophet Nathan says, yeah, that's, that's a good plan. Let's build a house for the ark. But remember that God comes to Nathan and tells Nathan, no, that's not the plan. Tell David, he will not build a house for me. Now his son will build the temple. He will build that house, but David won't do it. And it's in this same message from God through Nathan to David that God gives what we know as the Davidic covenant. He makes this promise to David. Let me just read part of it for you. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. God says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God makes this promise to David. And it's not just a promise to David. It's a promise for all of the people of God. There's going to be a king, a descendant of David, who will establish a kingdom that will last forever. Maybe you're sensing, yes, this is an important part of Scripture. This is an important promise. Now, this is all leading us back to Psalm 132. Having this story in mind is going to help us to understand what's going on in the psalm. David wants to build a house, and he makes a promise to God, I will build a house for you. 
God says no, but then he makes a promise of his own to, to David and to the people of God. As we come to Psalm 132, we have the people of God, and they're looking back and they're remembering the promise that David made and the promise that God made, and we get this request in verse 1. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I won't enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Now, we don't know for certain when this psalm was written, but I think all the context points towards these are people who are living a few generations past David. And they're looking back and they're remembering God made promises to David. And yet, we're living in a time when it does not seem like God is keeping his promises. And so we have this prayer. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor. For the sake of David, God, would you remember? And, and he says this, remember his hardships. To understand the hardships part, we need to go back and, and get a little bit more of the story. In Samuel, what we learn is that David... He obeys God. He does not build the house, but he is committed. This house will get built. So here's what David does. He gets everything ready. He makes the plans. He gathers the materials. He wants to make sure that everything's ready. All Solomon has to do is take the plans and take the materials and put it together. And we're told that he does this with great hardship. First Chronicles chapter 22, verse 14, David says this. With great pains, it's the same word, with great hardship, I have provided for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver, and bronze and iron beyond weighing. For there is so much of it, timber and stone, I too have provided. So David doesn't build the house, but we see he gives all kinds of effort to making preparation. He describes it as hardship, great pains. And then he explains, this is also in 1 Chronicles 22, he says, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced. He's going to be called the wisest man who ever lived. But at this time, David says, my son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house is to be built for the Lord. It must be exceedingly magnificent, of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. And if you remember the end of 1 Chronicles, there's a prayer that David prays in which he is giving this commission to Solomon. I'm dying, now it's time. Take everything I've gathered and build that house. So we come to Psalm 132, we have the people of God. And they're remembering the work that David had done the promises that David had made. I think they're living past Solomon. They've seen the temple built. And yet, it doesn't seem like God's doing what he said he was going to do. Remember the king who sits on the throne and a kingdom that's established forever? And so they're making this request, God, remember David. Remember how he gave himself to honoring you. Would you be faithful to your promises it's a plea to God to do what he has said he was going to do. 
After all, they're arguing David was faithful. Not only did he gather the materials and make preparations for the building, but he also brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. You can read that story as well. We see it alluded to here in verse 6. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. The it, that refers to the Ark of the Covenant. We heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. And this is, this is kind of wild to, to remember, that there was a period of time when the Ark of the Covenant, this treasured central part of the worship of the people of God, for a while was almost forgotten. It's described as being out in the woods. That's what that word J-R means. But David, he's committed to making things right. He wants the house to be built, and he sends, and he, he brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And starting in verse 7, we have the people thinking back and reflecting on what it was like when the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Jerusalem. There was no doubt a, a procession, and verse 7 says, Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. They're excited to go to Jerusalem, the coming of the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to go and we're going to worship in the presence of God. The presence of God is going to be there, right? They pray, verse 8, Arise, O Lord, go to your resting place, you and the Ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. And we get this sense that the people are behind David and they're thinking, this is finally being made right. The ark was not where it should be. Now it's being brought to Jerusalem. Let's go, let's worship. And God, we can take the ark, but you must bring your presence, right? Arise, go to the city, you and your ark. And God, would you make your priests righteous? What's he saying? This process by which we worship you, would you see that it's ready? And would you give us joy? So we see the excitement of the people. The ark is coming. It's going to be in the right place. We're going to worship God in the right way. With that story in mind, we go back to verse 1. And we hear the plea. Remember, O Lord. Remember that whole thing that David did and we did. Will you remember your servant? Will you remember the promises that you made to him? And it's repeated. I think this first section, it's verses 1 to 10, and we get the request in verse 1, and we get it again in verse 10. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The anointed one pointing to one who has come after David. For the sake of David, don't turn away your anointed one. I'm covering a lot of ground. We still together? We're we're all over, but let me try to bring it together for you. God had made promises to David, promises that weren't just for him, but that were for all the people of God. But as time had passed, the people were wondering, is God going to keep his promises? And so we have the requests. God, will you be faithful? And I think if we're honest... We all know what it's like to ask that question. After all, God said that he would be with us wherever we go, but sometimes we still feel alone. 
And God said that we can trust him to provide. But sometimes you may not see how that's possible in your situation. God said that he is working all things together for good for those who love him. But maybe for you, things seem out of control. Your kids aren't obedient. Your marriage isn't stable. Your work, just not as it should be. These are the promises of God, but maybe you've been there when you say, God, I need you to be faithful. I need you to keep your promises because it doesn't seem right now like you're keeping your promises. Let me give you one more. God has said that you will be forgiven of your sins if you repent. But you know the wickedness of your own heart. And maybe there's a part of you that wonders if God will really keep his promise to you. Will I really be forgiven for what I've done? And maybe you've got to the point where you've prayed, God, you've made promises. Remember your promises. Remember your servant. And that's the prayer of the first half of the psalm. You've made promises. God, will you keep your promises? For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. And then we get a transition. And in verses 11 to 18, we get reminders that God does, in fact, keep his promises. An assurance that God will be faithful. A few minutes ago, I read the covenants that God made to David from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in verses 11 through 12, if you take 2 Samuel verses, um, I don't remember the verses, chapter 7, that, that part of the covenant, you can compare it here to these verses. There's a lot of overlap. They say, God, remember your promise. And then here in verse 11, we read the promise. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also shall forever sit on your throne. So we look at the two halves of the psalm here. If you write in your Bible, you can just draw a line and maybe designate that there is a, a division here. Verses 1 to 10 are this plea, this request, God, will you keep your promises? And then verses 11 through 18 is the reminder, yes, God will, in fact, keep his promises. Verse 11, the Lord swore to David a, a sure oath from which he will not turn back. Do you see that? Answering the requests. God, will you keep your promises? Oh, he made a sure oath, one from which he will not turn back. But maybe you're a perceptive reader. And you, like I, were tempted to underline that word, if. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them. And maybe the people of God started to wonder. Maybe it's not God's fault the promises aren't being kept. Maybe it's ours. And maybe you've been there as well. It's not that I don't trust God, but I don't trust myself. But here's the reality. God made a sure oath that would be kept, and he added conditions. But he also had a plan for sending one who would fulfill all the conditions. There was an obedient one coming. Do you remember the announcement that the angel made to Mary? Luke chapter 1. 
the angel says to this young, unsuspecting virgin, you'll have a son. He will be great. It will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. What we can see because of when we live, looking back, is that God was faithful. There was a son of David who upheld the covenant. Israel wasn't faithful. The kings of Israel were not faithful. But God was faithful. He knew when he made the promise to David that he would keep the promise. He would keep both sides of the covenant. I told you earlier that as we think about the promises of God, we have an advantage. Because we can look back through biblical history and see how God has been faithful. Even when his people aren't faithful, he's faithful. His promises remain sure. We also see that there were times when the people wondered what God was doing, and they feared that maybe the covenant would not be kept. But we can see that God accounted for their unfaithfulness, and he sent one who would fulfill the promise. Friends, as we consider the coming of Christ, even as we go into the week of Easter, we remember the coming of Christ and the work that he did is a reminder that God is faithful and that God keeps his promises to his people. We see here in verses 11 and 12 that he had chosen the line of David, and we see as we keep reading that he had chosen Zion as the city where his presence would dwell. Verse 13, the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Now, something I've not mentioned yet, but should, you should be tracking with it. This was a song of ascents, just like the other songs we've been considering. And no doubt it makes its way into that hymn book because of these references to Zion. The people going up and saying, that is the city of God, that is the one he has chosen. And the city itself and the presence of God in that city is a reminder that God keeps his promises. But what does it mean that he has chosen it forever? Well, we know that Jesus came as the true and ultimate king of Israel, and now he's ruling and reigning from heaven. And we've talked in previous weeks about how Jerusalem, Zion, was a foreshadowing of the eternal city of God. And we know that even now God is keeping his promise. He is ruling from his throne, and one day he will establish the new Jerusalem, his dwelling place forever. And I'll remind you, if you're, if you're wondering, can we make that connection can we connect that historic city to the coming city? Well, the writer of Hebrews explains it this way. Hebrews 12, verse 22. He's talking about us now, today, present tense believers. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering." and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. He's saying, right now, you have come spiritually to God. 
And while there is a day coming when we will be with God in the new Jerusalem, even now the Bible describes us having access to the presence of God. And it reinforces the theme that we've been following. God is faithful to his promises. The first people who heard this psalm and sang it, they didn't know all the ways that God would keep his promises. But we can see more clearly. And now, when we wonder, because we can't see the way God, it, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. We can look back and see that sometimes God works in unexpected ways. A king born to a virgin in Bethlehem. God keeps his promises in unexpected ways. He kept his promise to David. He kept his promise to Zion. And he will keep his promise to care for his people. We see it there in verse 15. I will abundantly bless her provision, speaking of Zion. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. Now, you're perceptive readers. You're probably already there. You've made this connection. You've drawn some lines in your Bible. And you've recognized that there are parallels between the requests and the answers. The, the primary request is that ver in verses 1 to 5, the request that God would remember David. And then we see in verse 11 and 12 that God says, yes, I will remember David. Then in verses 7 and 8, there was a request. God, will you come to Zion? Arise, come, you and your ark, to Zion. And then in verse 13 and 14, God says, Zion's my city. That's where my presence will dwell. Verse 9, we have the request. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and your saints shout for joy. And then in verse 16, the assurance. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. For joy. What we see is for every request in the first half of the psalm, we have an assurance from God that he will in fact keep his promises. But it's not an exact parallel. Let me just encourage you to see this. That everything they asked was answered and more. If you look closely, there was the request for the God to remember David. God says, I will remember him. And that promise is forever. The people ask God to come to Zion. God says, I'll dwell in Zion forever. The people ask God to bless the people. In verse 15 and 16, we see the actions go beyond what was asked. They said, clothe our priests with righteousness and give us joy. God says, I will abundantly prevent bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. The promise goes further than the requests. God promises to provide for his people physically and spiritually. He's promised to send salvation and joy. And these are promises we see reiterated in the New Testament, made more sure in Christ. God does care for the poor and the vulnerable. He has called us priests. And he has granted us the righteousness of Christ. He gives us joy that we cannot have apart from him. 
These are promises that we enjoy now in part in this life and that we will experience in full in the life to come. And all of it's possible because of Christ. Now, I would argue there's been allusions to Christ throughout this second half, but it becomes really clear, I think, in verses 17 and 18. Verse 17, therefore, God says, I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But on his crown, on him his crown will shine. If we go back, the last verse of the first section, there's the request. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. And now we get the answer, and again, the answer goes beyond the request. Not only will he remember and not turn his face from him, he says, I will make a horn sprout up. This is a, a symbol of strength, stability. I'll provide a lamp, which means to bring light to darkness. And when we get to the New Testament and to the coming of Christ, both of these symbols are attributed to Jesus. Remember that song of Zechariah? Every year when we get to Christmas, I just, I just want to preach that song again. I love the song of Zechariah. Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, has recognized that the one that they have been waiting for has come, or is coming. And he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Fulfillment, Psalm 132. A little bit later in that same song, he says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. In the psalm, we hear the promise of God, a horn of salvation is coming. Zechariah says, a horn of salvation has come. The psalm says God will send a lamp. He'll send a light. Zechariah says, the light has come. God promised to send someone who would defeat every enemy, and Jesus is the one who has come to do just that. It's the week of Easter. On Friday, we're going to remember the death of Christ. On Sunday, we're going to celebrate his resurrection. And we know that because Jesus died and rose again, every enemy has been defeated. I love the imagery of verse 18. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Can you use your imagination and think to that final day when Christ in all his glory sits on the throne of David? All enemies have been put to shame. And he's reigning for all to see. God is faithful to his promises. We see that here. The first half of the psalm is made up of questions and requests. The second half made up of assurances. God always keeps his promises. He is present with his people now. One day we'll be with him forever. His word is true now and always. If you've been around Southern Hills for any period of time, I trust that you've recognized that we place a high priority on the Word of God. We give the majority of our time 
on Sundays to unpacking psalms that at first we read and just say, what's going on, right? And we, we say, we want to we understand what God has said. We believe his word. And I'm encouraging you all the time, read the Bible. On Wednesday, we gave our time together to talking about how we should read the Bible on our own and what it looks like and how we can get the most advantage from that. And again, this week, as I spent time in the psalm, man, I've told you this, some weeks I sit down and think, this is, on Tuesday, I'm excited about Sunday, right? And some Tuesdays, I'm like, oh, okay, let's figure out, right? And it takes some work. And I just want to encourage you, if sometimes certain parts of the Bible take work for you, that's appropriate. But when we get into the scriptures, what we get to see is that there's a perspective and a history beyond our own personal experience. Because I can look at my own life, and sometimes I have question marks. God, this doesn't look like it's adding up. But the advantage of Psalm 132, the advantage of biblical history, is we look back and we say, no, God's always faithful. And we're not the first to have wondered, is God going to be faithful? And passages like Psalm 132 remind us, God is always faithful. And even if it's a way, in a way that we didn't expect or couldn't predict, God's faithful. As we look back, we can see what God was doing when he told Abraham to go to a land he had never seen. When we look back, we can see why he allowed Joseph to go into slavery. We can see God's hand in the life of Job. We can recognize his purpose in the exile. We can look back and see the big picture, and we can see how God was working. And my question for us is, how come we look back and say, they didn't see it, but God was faithful. But then when we look at our own lives, we say, I don't see it. Is God faithful? And I want to encourage you, the biblical memory, the biblical history should confirm to us that even if we don't see it clearly now, we can still trust the hand of God. To go back to the quote I read earlier. With biblical memory, we have 2,000 years of experience from which to make the off-the-cuff responses that are required each day in the life of faith. It's a big sentence. Did you hear what he said? Every day we're making choices, we're making decisions. But we can make those decisions and we can see God when we bring in the testimony of God's faithfulness throughout the generations. Psalm 132 is a good example of how we can see the faithfulness of God towards his people. It points us towards our ultimate and only hope, the Son of God who lived a perfect life, who kept the covenant that the people didn't keep, died the death that covered the sins, and rose from the dead, securing our salvation. This week, we're going to remember and celebrate God did keep his promise to David. And these promises are extended to us. They're promises for all who trust in him. And if you know Christ, you can know this. God keeps his promises. His promise of peace. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. God has promised peace. He will give peace. He's promised provision. He said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, neither, 
gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? He's promised his presence. He says, I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. And you can go on this week, and you can know that every promise of God given in his word is a promise that he will keep. God has made promises to his people, and his promises are sure. He can be trusted. I pray that this week we'll be able to believe it. Would you join me in prayer? God, I thank you for Psalm 132. I thank you for the chance to slow down and to recognize it's a small part of all you have to teach us through it. I thank you for the realization that I'm not the first one to look around and say, God, what's going on? Are you going to be faithful? And I thank you for the assurance of the second half of that psalm that, yes, you are always faithful, more faithful than we would even ask for. Your promises go further and deeper than we could ever know to ask for. God, I know I have friends in this room who are struggling to trust you. God, I pray that they would be encouraged by your faithfulness. I thank you for our brothers and sisters of biblical history who endured suffering and pain whom you delivered and whose story we can look back on and gain confidence through. And God, I, I even pray that you would allow us to be that example for those around us. Those who trust God in the midst of difficulty, those who trust God in the midst of trouble, knowing that you are faithful. We thank you for your goodness. We ask for your help. It's in Jesus' name we pray.